Greetings to you all. I'm honored and pleased to be with you, at least virtually, for worship this morning at Boston Avenue United Methodist Church. To all of you in Tulsa, I bring greetings from your brothers and sisters in Washington, D.C. Our text for this morning is Genesis chapters 1, verse 26, and chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next she bore Abel, his brother. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out into the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said, to him, not so, whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God for the people of God. Now, for many of you, this uh, story may be familiar. It's kind of part of the early creation myth in the book of Genesis. The purpose of creation myths is to tell us who we are. They link the present to the past within a meaningful framework. In the deep south where I'm from, we'd say these origin stories along with family lore and objects handed down through generations give us a sense of our people. They give us a frame of reference. They help us locate ourselves in an otherwise immense, chaotic swirl of events. What is sometimes overlooked is that they are normative. That is, they express a set of values. And they tell us something about our value in the universe or in the history of our country, our state, or our community. In the first chapter of the first book of the Hebrew Bible, we hear this normative framework. This creation myth is a story of human dignity made in the very image and likeness of God, and placed in authority above all other parts of creation, created last, but first in God's eyes. This creation myth with this assertion of universal human dignity and value 
was problematic for European Christians who first landed on American shores. American Christianity, with a priori commitments to whiteness and racial hierarchies built into its worldview, was compelled to shape its theology to justify the enslavement of Africans and other dark-skinned people around the world. So white Christian clergy and institutions offered up a number of theological solutions to this dilemma. The harshest was an outright denial that those of African descent were human. If this were true, if Africans and dark-skinned peoples were more beasts than human, Scripture then clearly placed them under the dominion of whites. Up through the 19th century, this assertion was a matter of serious debate, not just among white clergy and white churches, but among scientists, white scientists and philosophers as well. The great African-American writer James Baldwin noticed that this dilemma in 1964, one of his writings. He said this, The people who settled the country had a fatal flaw. They could recognize a man when they saw one. They knew he wasn't. I mean, you can tell they knew he wasn't anything else but a man. But since they were Christian, and since they had already decided that they had come here to establish a free country, the only way to justify the role that this chattel was playing in one's life was to say that he was not a man. For if he wasn't a man, then no crime had been committed. This is the root of the present trouble. When the outright denial of humanity of African-Americans and other people of color finally fell under the weight of its absurdity, white Christianity moved to a fallback position based on today's text, what commonly became known as the curse of Cain. In this reading, blacks were cast as a descendants of Cain, whom the book of Genesis describes as being physically marked by God after killing his brother and then lying to God about the crime. While the text makes no mention of skin tone, white clergy seized on this passage to fashion a new and alternative creation myth for dark-skinned peoples that admitted them into the category of human, but simultaneously retained and justified a racial hierarchy. In this retelling, the original black ancestor was a murderer, a criminal who killed his own brother. And modern-day dark-skinned people continue to bear the physical mark of this ancient transgression. The lineage of whites, by contrast, came through the subsequent son of Adam and Eve, Seth, who is described in Genesis 5 uh, as being, quote, a son in Adam's likeness according to his image. And it is the lineage of Seth, not Cain, that leads to Noah and, the descendant, and his descendant Abraham. It did not need to be reiterated under this reading that the, this bifurcated creation myth told a story not only of the primordial black ancestor's physical distinctiveness, but also told us something about, told white people, something about the contemporary moral character of his descendants. Whites were descended from Seth, the spitting image of Adam, while black and other people of color were descended from Cain, a marked fratricidal criminal. These teachings persisted in many white evangelical Protestant churches and even in many main, white mainline Protestant circles well into the 20th century. White Christian ministers and churches asserted as inerrant biblical teaching that people of African descent are, a few thousand years removed, the descendants of Cain, that the God of the universe had chosen whites to civilize and dominate the earth, and that the separation of the races, particularly white and black, in the middle part of this continent we call North America, is unquestionably God-ordained. One of the reasons I'm here with you today is that Boston Avenue 
church is conducting a 100-day reflection period on the terrible events in Tulsa 100 years ago, when mobs of white residents indiscriminately attacked the homes and businesses of their black neighbors in the Greenwood District. Over a several-day period, the violence destroyed more than 35 blocks of what was at the time uh, the wealthiest black community in the United States, known as Black Wall Street. More than 800 people were admitted to hospitals. The Oklahoma Bureau of Vital Statistics officially recorded at the time uh, 36 dead. But a 2001 state commission examination of the events and contemporary scholars estimate that between 100 and 300 were killed. No white citizens were convicted or held accountable. While it was one of the, among the worst events of murder and violence aimed at black residents by their white neighbors in American history, it was part of a pattern of more than a dozen episodes of white mass racial violence that occurred between the end of the Civil War and the 1930s in at least 10 different states. These outbreaks of mass violence by whites, coupled with frequent lynchings during the same period, were part of the daily terror that African Americans lived with, and white Christian Americans simultaneously justified and ignored following emancipation and the brief Reconstruction period after the Civil War. When I was conducting research for my book, White Too Long, I spent time at the National Memorial for Peace and Justice and the Legacy Museum in downtown Montgomery, Alabama. Projects supported by the Equal Justice Initiative and dedicated to memorializing the victims of lynching in American history. There I came across an installation comprised of rows and rows of glass jars on wooden racks containing soil samples from lynching sites. The jars are labeled with the name, date, and location of the victims in uniform white letters, which contrast with the different colors and textures of the soils. Some hold the sand of coastal regions, while others contain dark black delta cotton soil, the red clay of Alabama and Georgia, and the mossy loam of the low country. While these contemporary soil samples do not literally contain human, human remains or blood from the lynchings, I found the way they bridge space and time deeply moving. In the reflections of these glass jars of dirt dug from lynching site grounds and in the soil still sitting beneath the Greenwood District in Tulsa, a different understanding of the Genesis story can be heard, one that inverts the traditional white interpretation of the story. Today I'm inviting those of us who are white Christians to rehear this narrative, particularly the passage where God confronts Cain. Let's hear it again. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? God then presses Cain, and the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. As the memorial display makes vividly clear, in America it is not primarily white blood that cries out from the ground. Rather, it is white Americans who have murdered our black and brown brothers and sisters. After the genocide and forced removal of Native Americans from their lands, the enslavement of millions of African Americans, the lynching of over 4,400 African Americans, and the killing of thousands more through outbreaks of white mass racial violence like that in Tulsa, we must finally reckon with a deeply disturbing truth. It is white Americans who have used our faith as a shield to justify our actions, to deny our responsibility, and to insist on our innocence. But we, white Christian Americans, are Cain. And despite our denials, our equivocations, our protests, and our excuses, 
As the Bible narrative declares, the soil itself preserves and carries a testimony of truth to God. Today, God's anguish questions, where is your brother and what have you done? Still hang in the air like morning mist on the Mississippi River. We are only just beginning to hear these questions, let alone find the words to voice honest answers. These twin queries are, of course, rhetorical, even in the biblical story. God certainly knows the answers, and if we're honest with ourselves, so do we. I've always found it puzzling that God asked these questions of Cain. When I was younger, I thought perhaps God was playing a divine game of gotcha with Cain, laying a trap and testing him to see if he would lie. But I think the better interpretation, and one that is relevant for us, is that God is giving Cain the opportunity for confession, for honesty, knowing that this would be the best path for Cain to begin reckoning with the traumatic experience of killing his own brother, the pain he has unleashed for himself and others, and the consequences that will inevitably follow. God's questions were a compassionate invitation to Cain, giving him an opportunity to avoid the distortion of his humanity that this trauma and the perpetual deception required to cover it up would inevitably bring. But just as we have Cain doubles down, throwing his own rhetorical question back at God, am I my brother's keeper? Cain not only indignantly denies that any, that any knowledge about his brother's fate, but also rejects the very idea that he should be expected to answer God's question. Here, it's clear that Cain's decision to lie about his hand in the murder and to deny responsibility makes his own future harder, just as our denials threaten our own future. The challenge for white Americans today, and white Christians in particular, is whether and how we are going to answer God's lingering question. What have you done? As we contemplate our answers, there are certainly important pragmatic considerations. Continued racial inequality, injustice, and unrest harm our ability to live together in a democratic society. As in many cities across the country, the continued segregation and different life expectancies between white and black Tulsa residents undermine a sense of shared community. Racial prejudice and divisions provide weapons for our enemies that wish to weaken our nation. White supremacy is sand in the gears of the economy and a source of life-threatening threat, uh, life-threatening conflict in our politics. But another important consideration, and one that we whites have given very little thought to, is the ways in which our complicity in this history and our unwillingness to face it have warped our own identities. Just as Cain was separated from his natural family, we have allowed white supremacy to separate us, not just from our black brothers and sisters, but from a true sense of who we are. We, like Cain, must return to this question if we are to find ourselves again. It is white Christian souls that have been deeply disfigured by the myth of white supremacy. And it is we who are most in need of repentance and restoration, not just for the sake of the descendants of those who our ancestors kidnapped, robbed, whipped, murdered, and oppressed, and not just for those today who are unjustifiably shot by police, unfairly tried, wrongfully convicted, denied jobs, and poorly educated in failing schools, but for the sake of our own children and our own future. And there's hope here in the Genesis story, even for Cain, 
God acts to preserve the possibility of a new future. In order to heal from the present, we must face the bitter past. And your congregation is doing this admirable work, providing 100 days of reflection ahead of the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre. A story in the June 6, 1921 Tulsa Day World shows just how close to home this conversation will come. The story features excerpts from a sermon delivered on the Sunday following the Tulsa Race Massacre by Bishop Ed Mousen to this very congregation, Boston Avenue Church, then affiliated with the Methodist Episcopal Church South. With regard to racial equality, Bishop Mousen declared from the pulpit, quote, There never has been and there never will be such a thing. It is divinely ordained. This is something that the Negroes should be told very plainly. Steps towards social equality are the worst possible thing for the Negro man and the white. While he went on to denounce the KKK and mob violence, he also went on to blame uh, the violence on Tulsa's African-American residents and even on a visit uh, to Tulsa by W.B. Du Bois, um, blaming him for stirring up trouble, calling Du Bois, quote, the most vicious Negro man in this country, end quote. He closed his sermon by stressing that white civilization had indeed broken down in Tulsa, but the hope of civilization is Christ. In that sermon, Bishop Mousen also declared his conviction that, quote, Tulsa is no better nor worse than the average city. Its white people are no better, no worse than those of an average American city. In this, he was certainly right. What do we do with such a Christian inheritance? What do we do with such a Christian inheritance? Certainly, there are no magical solutions that will sweep away the centuries of entanglement between white supremacy and Christianity. But I'd like to suggest that there are three practical steps that we white Christians can take that can make a difference. First, we have to know the truth about our history. And we need to tell the truth about our history. We need to know about our family histories and our church histories. In writing White Too Long, I learned more about my own family's history, populated with both Baptist pastors and enslavers often in the same body. And I learned one of the most respected churches in my home state, First Baptist Church in Jackson, Mississippi, played an important role in supporting one of the most segregationist governors in the country during the Civil Rights Movement. These stories, and the one I just told about Bishop Mousen, are the tip of the iceberg. If every white Christian in every white Christian church in America wrote a more truthful, confessional history of our failures on the issue of racial equality, it would be a massive first step toward healing in our communities. Second, we have to build relationships in our personal lives and in our congregational lives. Uh, today, uh, the average white American's close friendship network is over 90% white, and three quarters of whites have no non-white people among their closest friends. Sunday morning is still, as Martin Luther King Jr. pointed out in the 1960s, the most segregated hour in America. Casual connections and pulpit swaps are insufficient to the task we face before us. We have to build spaces that generate real relationships. We can't love all our neighbors well if we don't know them. Finally, we have to acknowledge the truth of Jesus' statement that, quote, where our treasure is, there will our heart be also. 
Given the unjust economic advantages that have accrued to white institutions since the founding of the country, every white Christian should include in their charitable giving, and every white Christian church should incorporate into their annual budgets significant contributions to historically black institutions or nonprofit institutions that primarily serve people of color. These steps really boil down to the simple act of turning the Christian principles of telling the truth and loving our neighbors from platitudes into action. 400 years after the first African slave landed on our shores, and over 160 years after the abolition of slavery, a combination of social forces and demographic changes has brought our country to a crossroads. We white Christians must find the courage to face the fact that the version of Christianity that our ancestors built, the faith of our fathers as the hymn celebrates it, was a cultural force that by design protected and propagated white supremacy. We've inherited this tradition with scant critique, and we have a moral and religious obligation to face the burden of that history and, demand, and its demand on our present. Inaction is a tacit blessing on, whites, on the white supremacy gene's continued presence among us and its continued presence in the next generation. Doing nothing will ensure that despite our best intentions, we will continue to turn deaf ears to calls for racial justice. It is indeed difficult and at times overwhelming to confront historical atrocities. But if we want to root out an insidious white supremacy from our institutions, our religion, and our psyches, we will have to move beyond the forgetfulness and silence that have allowed it to flourish for so long. Importantly, as white Americans find the courage to embark on this journey of transformation, we will discover that the beneficiaries are not only our African-American neighbors, but ourselves as we slowly recover from the disorienting madness of white supremacy. What few whites perceive, and this is a truth that has come late to me, is that we have more at stake than our black fellow citizens in setting things right. As James Baldwin provocatively put it, the civil rights movement began when an oppressed and despised people began to wake up collectively to what had happened to them. The question today for we white Christians is whether we will also wake, awaken to see what has happened to us and to grasp once and for all how white supremacy has robbed us of our own heritage, of our own ability to be in right relationships with our fellow citizens, with ourselves, and even with God. Reckoning with white supremacy for us is now an unavoidable moral and religious choice.